Well, thank you all for welcoming me this morning. I'm, I'm a nervous person by nature, and I'm always a little bit nervous uh, to come to a new church and, and preach, and I always feel welcomed. And uh, this time it was particularly nice because the first song we played was one that we just did in our VBS last week. And uh, instead of being nervous, I was reminded of a fifth grader I sat beside. And there was a part in the song we had motions because we're that kind of church. And um, <clears throat> uh, there was a part where you have to get down low and then you jump up high. And I was in competition with him to see who could get lower or jump higher. He got lower, but I had the height advantage. So I usually won uh, the battle. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning. Some challenging, uh, challenging words in these passages. Um, and I think the, the deeper we dig, the more challenging it gets, really. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, provide a little bit of context. Um, I was telling everybody in the meeting before, I'm, I'm, I'm just a historian, I'm not a theologian. I don't, uh, I wasn't trained that way anyway. I've been a pastor for, for some years now, but, but uh, my training is in history. And so for me to understand scripture, it's really important that I get as much historical context as I can to make sense out of what's going on in the passage. And in this case, I just want to start with a little bit of that. So Mark, uh, you probably know, but maybe not. Mark's uh, the shortest gospel, probably the first one written. It's uh, John Mark wrote it down, but it's, it's mostly the, uh, from the sermons of Peter. So it's Peter's, Peter's perception uh, on Jesus's life. And, and just like Peter, the way John Mark writes is really snappy. It's to the point. He says what he needs to say and then he's done. And, and so these, these passages are like that. We can go to the other gospels like Matthew or, or Luke and find more depth in some cases, more information that helps us understand things. But Mark is really uh, to the point and I, I like that about him. Um, at this point in the book, uh, Jesus has started going towards Jerusalem, towards his death. And he's told the disciples a couple of times uh, by this point that that's why they're going to Jerusalem, so that he can be, he can be handed over and, um, and, and killed. The disciples are struggling in dealing with that. And I think Jesus probably is also uh, concerned a little bit about how much they're struggling. They, they don't seem to be getting it uh, for example, if we can start, start today's message in a different scripture, if we'll turn just over a page to, to Mark 9 to get a, a real sense of the context. Mark 9, verse 33. In the passages above that, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Uh, and, and, and the disciples were wrestling with that as they walked on to Capernaum. Verse 33, Mark chapter 9, verse 33 says, They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had, been, they had argued about who was the greatest. 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And so what, what, what the passage that we're going to look at today uh, is, is really it's an expansion of this idea. Jesus is calling the disciples not just to do things differently, but to think differently, to have a different mind, a renewed mind. And the disciples are really struggling with that. And it's not something that Christians have stopped struggling with it. Today, we, we continue to struggle with having a transformed or a renewed mind. We want to we wanna stay where it's safe. And so we uh, sometimes have a hard time seeing things the way Jesus sees them. 
these passages, I think, help us, help us get to the bottom of some of that. And so we'll start in uh, Mark chapter 9, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 10, verse 1. <clears throat> says, uh, Jesus then left that place and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. In verse 4, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Okay, so uh, Capernaum is way up north. It's up by the Sea of Galilee, and we go down towards Jerusalem. So uh, they're walking down towards Jerusalem, and as he does that, there are people, it says, who, who come to him and to, uh, to, want to learn from him, and, and so he teaches them. The crowds are out there. The Pharisees are curious about what's going on, maybe a little threatened about their own position. And so they come out, and they're going to they're gonna test him. My, 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 uh, my translation says they came and tested him and, and, and really implied in that there's two kinds of testing. One is testing for, to show that something is good and one's testing to show that something is bad. This is the one that's testing to tear down. This is the one that's testing to destroy. The Pharisees came to test Jesus to reveal his weaknesses, to cause problems for him. And so they came and they test him asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? When they say that, when we read that, we have a certain understanding of what that means and all the implications of that. When those Pharisees asked that question to Jesus in his context, context they had an entirely different understanding of what that meant. Their understanding could be broken down in two different ways. Um, there were two different rabbis who, who were talking through this. Who they, had, they had developed schools, uh, schools of thought, and, and, and they had two pretty distinct teachings on this. All of it comes from the, quote, from the passage that the, the, the Pharisees are going to quote there. Uh, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And what it says is that a man can, can divorce his wife, can send her away, if she becomes displeasing because he finds something indecent about her. Women, of course, couldn't send uh, a man away. The, the nature of Hebrew society was that men had all the power. So women were, women were powerless in this situation. But a man could choose to end a marriage if she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Now, there's two components there. Displeasing and indecent. Does that make sense? And so these two schools had focused on the two different sides. Uh, uh, Shammai was the first rabbi. His school said that, that we want to focus on the indecent part. So the only reason a man could divorce his wife is because she had committed adultery. It had to be something really severe uh, for there to be divorce. Hillel, uh, who for reasons that will become apparent in just a second, uh, was more popular. And he said that a man could divorce his wife if he became displeased with her. It's kind of vague, so he, he specified some things, and that included burning dinner. Okay, so these are, these are our poles. I'm not making that up. I'm not making it up. Uh, burning dinner gave you the right to divorce your wife if he found another woman that he was more pleased with 
that was a reason to divorce his wife. So these are our polls. Adultery, burning dinner. Okay? Now, we know the selfish nature of people. Men are people. And so which, which one of those rules do you think they were more inclined to follow? Yeah, that's why Hillel was more popular in this, in this teaching. And so when the, when the Pharisees come to ask Jesus this question, they're not just asking some, oh, I'm really curious about this subject question. They're asking it with a purpose. They know that there's division already around this topic, and he's trying to tap into that division. He also knows, this is really interesting, he also knows that they're now in Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa's territory. This is his part of, of the Roman Empire. He's the one who locked up John the Baptist for criticizing his marriage, his second marriage. Does that make sense? So the Pharisees are coming to test Jesus by asking him to decide between two things that people already have really strong opinions on and by asking him to get into some trouble with Herod. Maybe he'll get arrested. That'd be perfect for the Pharisees. Maybe he'll say something, something that Herod doesn't like and Herod will have him arrested. So the Pharisees, do you see how they're coming to test him? They're not coming to ask a question. They're, they're coming to, to hurt him. And this is the best way they can do that through this topic. And so as I, as I approach the rest of these verses, um, I want us to kind of take that focus with us. Um, divorce is, is the vehicle here, but the process is to ruin him by, by, making him, by making him pick a side. Does that make sense? And we have that in all different kinds of issues in our lives. So the Pharisees come to test him. Jesus, who's way smarter than the Pharisees, said, verse three, what did Moses command you? He replied, verse four, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And we understand what's going on there. They said, you've got two choices. Which one is it? And Jesus doesn't think that way. His, his, his mind is not the same as our mind. He isn't limited to the little conversations we have and the little disagreements we have. So he responds in verse five, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Verse seven, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Verse nine, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. It's such a good illustration of what it means to think the way Jesus wants us to think, to have a transformed mind. He demonstrates for his disciples who couldn't understand what it meant to, to, to be uh, important in the kingdom of God. They wanted to rule. They wanted to be at the right hand of God. He's showing them right now, <clears throat> you're, you're thinking about it in human terms. Here's how you think about it from God's perspective. And he just goes back and he says, here's how it is. Here's how God intended it. God made them male and female. He made men and women. And he intended for them to come together, not for convenience, for the purpose of becoming one flesh. They both bring their, their gifts to the situation. They both bring their weaknesses. And together, they become a new flesh, a new person that can, that can put aside our own desires, our own goals, and take up God's goals. Does that make sense? That's his plan. That's, is everybody okay with that? That's his plan for us. Now, we know that we fall short of that all the time. I don't, I'm not going to convict y'all. I know that I fall short of that all the time. But I also recognize that his plan is this. 
This is what he wants for us. He wants for us to leave our homes, leave our families, leave our, our parents, and come and become one person with the one that we marry. Okay, we're all, we're all on board with that. What happened was Jesus was presented with two different choices, Hillel or Shammai, and Jesus said, that's meaningless. Let's go back to what God has in mind. That makes sense? It's, he's demonstrating for us what it means to have a transformed mind, to not, to not play by the rules of the world, but to play by God's rules. And it's costly. That's, how, that's why the Pharisees thought they could catch him on it. <clears throat> so... Um, Let me say it. Let me say it one more way. What the Pharisees were trying to do, I think, what the Pharisees were trying to do is, from their perspective, get the most that they could, the most things they wanted, the most happiness as they defined it, the most out of life without stepping across the boundaries that God has for them. Does that make sense? So, so let's, say, let's say God's boundaries are that big in real life, but they can, they can interpret words differently to make them that big so that they can explore this much more happiness out there. Does that make sense? What they were trying to do is understand their relationship with God as it benefited them. Now, they recognize there are boundaries but they want to push those boundaries so that they can be in control. They can have their way. We okay with that? They can, they can pursue another wife if they find somebody who cooks better, for example. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what Jesus is calling us to do is to have a transformed mind where we live our lives not pursuing what we want, pursuing God's ideal, recognizing we live in a sinful world and there are, those are our boundaries. Those are our, our, our obstacles to happiness, the sinful world, not God's laws, obstacles to our happiness as sinful people. Does that make sense? It's a little switch over. All right, we'll say a little bit better here in a second. Verse 10. <clears throat> so Jesus had just knocked, uh, had turned everything upside down. People, people didn't have a category for that. So the disciples are now worried about, well, how do I understand this? This is what Hillel or Shammai taught. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. So they asked Jesus in verse 10. When they were in his house again, the disciples asked Jesus about that. Verse 11, he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, divorce is not just an issue that's historical. It's an issue that's today, right? We still have this. And so these verses are, are um, difficult, difficult to understand. Uh, I am not your pastor. You know that. Um, and and if, if, you have, if you have questions about this or concerns about this, uh, somebody on staff here, your pastor, is, is someone to ask for sure. Because um, the Bible talks about divorce in many, many different places. And there's a whole bunch of moving parts here that, that we have to address if we're going to understand what divorce is. In this passage, Jesus is very, very plain. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Again, strongly recommend you, if you have questions about this, study it. 
This isn't the only passage on it. What he's saying is, God's ideal is this, one flesh forever. Divorce is not that, and therefore it is sin. Okay? That hurts. That's, that's convicting. Our families, many of our families have, have been affected by this. But let's take the liberty of, of expanding out this new way of thinking about things. Let's go to Jesus for some help because we don't want to do this on our own. If we turn to, to, to Matthew, remember the Sermon on the Mount? Starts off with the Beatitudes, blessed are the people who are usually not blessed, the poor, the, the hungry, the thirsty, the persecuted. He kind of turns everything upside down there, right? And then he goes a little bit farther and he starts redefining what sin is. People, just like they had rules about divorce, they had rules about all these other sins too. <clears throat> Jesus goes and redefines them and, and you're familiar with them. He says that hating your brother is the same as murdering your brother, right? He says that looking at someone else lustfully is the same as committing adultery. What's he doing with that? He's causing us to challenge the way we think about what right and wrong is and to listen to God's ideal for us. Does he want us hating people? Certainly not. Does he want us lusting after people we're not married to? Certainly not. Uh, there's a really challenging one there towards the end. It says, don't worry. For me, at least. A really challenging one. It says, don't worry about how you're going to get your next meal or, or where your clothes are going to come from because we should be depending on God. That makes sense? And what we've done is we've taken all these, these commands, all these scriptural rules that we can wrap our heads around, we think, and we've... we've We've latched on to those, manipulated them sometimes, but we've latched on to them because that's something we can think about. And we realize, <clears throat> we can think about that uh, in the context of, of our sinful world, in the context of things that we're comfortable with. What Jesus is, is reminding us of is anything that's outside God's ideal is sin. The way it's defined is God's a straight line. Anything we're not there, we're not, we're not on the same line as he is. We're in sin. Divorce, adultery, lust, adultery, hate, murder, all those things are sin equally. This is not an uplifting message. I'm sorry about that. <clears throat> but it is an uplifting message because we have to get to that point before we can humble ourselves to have our mind transformed. If we don't, if we, I'm guilty of this, so I'll just say it. A lot of times I think, I live my life kind of going from sin to sin, but most of the time I'm okay. So every once in a while I have to stop and ask God to forgive me for this thing or for that thing because my world has, has, has helped me to understand sin that way, right? Uh, I told a fib there. I probably shouldn't have done that. Forgive me. I, I did something I should have done over here. Forgive me for that, Lord. I, I'm sorry I, I caused that harm. What Jesus is saying is we're just swimming around in sin. We are, we are not... We are not living the ideal lives that he, that he wants us to live because we can't. We're wrapped up in sin. We can do our best, but the fact of the matter is we're still outside of his will almost always.
We okay with that? That's a different way of thinking about things, but I, 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 I think that's what, that's what we're getting here. He's saying, he's saying, your society might tell you that something's not sinful. Even the rabbis might tell you that something's not sinful. The fact is, God is our measurement for sin. It's not the rabbis and it's not society. It's not, it's not the happy part of the sermon, but I think it's really true. So the question is then, how do we do this thing? How do we, how do we allow our minds to be transformed? Romans 12 is the passage. I, I should have mentioned that to y'all earlier. Romans 12, 2 is our passage uh, for this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. <clears throat> um, but, 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 but be transformed. My writing's sloppy and I'm afraid to go by memory. Uh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2. What's that mean? I don't think it means follow the rules that we're told to follow. I don't think it means that. I think it means something else. And I think it means knowing who Jesus is. I don't think it means memorizing the rules that are in the Bible and doing those rules. It's a relationship with Jesus. That's what we talk about. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's not following a set of rules that have been picked out for us to follow. It's a relationship with him and it's the only way to do it. Seeing him. Uh, through scripture, knowing what his life was like because he's, he's God, he's God among us. So let's, let's see what that looks like. I think we get a really, really great example of this and, and a really, really great example of our failings. Verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Amen is right. Amen is right. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so here we go. We're, we're going down. There's crowds everywhere. People start bringing their kids out so Jesus can bless them, whatever. Hug them. I don't know what it is. I got some ideas. Um, and, and they're bringing these kids out and there's already crowds and the disciples are there and they say, no kids, you can't come see Jesus. For us, that sounds a little weird because we have a thing about our kids and we want them to do everything and, and all that. Why did the disciples turn the kids away? I think there's some theories here that we need to explore. Um, I have one that I didn't read anywhere else, so I'm sure it's wrong. But I mean, Jesus has told them that where they're walking to right now, he's gonna die. That has to weigh heavy on you. And in my own life, when I get frustrated, I can be a little short, especially to people that I don't need anything from, like kids. So I could imagine the, uh, the disciples just being at the end of their rope and saying, we don't want you around, go away. Don't have time for you right now. More likely, the ones that you'll read places uh, are socially constructed. So the idea that kids aren't that important, we have, we have this sense that kids are important and we should drive them to this game and to that game and to this thing and that thing and everything should be organized around them. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's our way of looking at it. Their way of looking at it was not that. Their way of looking at it was kids are around and that's fine. They're gonna grow up and do something important one day. But, but right now they're just kids. There were special times. Um, and so the disciples might have thought, well, they're just not important enough. Look, these guys are important. They're the ones who should be talking to Jesus. The one that I like the most comes from uh, a guy named George Lamsa. 
And uh, he comes from a, from a, a Middle Eastern background. Um, he, he translated an Arabic Bible into a, to an English uh, translation for us. And his perspective on this was that when political leaders would come to town, parents threw the kids in the closet or told them to go out and play or got rid of them, and then the parents went and talked to the political leaders, rubbed noses and all, or rubbed, rubbed shoulders and all that stuff. Noses would be different. Uh, shoulders. <clears throat> um, with the political leaders, the kids were out of the way, so we didn't have to worry about them. But when a religious leader came to town, they brought the kids out. And they'd have the kids go to the religious leader and the religious leader would bless them or say a prayer over them. On their birthday, if you lived in Jerusalem, on the birthdays of the kids, they would go or a place where there was a big, a big synagogue or someplace where religious leaders hung out. They would take them there on their birthdays so that the religious leaders could pray over them. It's part of connecting them to God. Lamsa argues that it's possible that the disciples were saying, to kind of put it in, into one big pile, Jesus is not a religious leader as much as he is a political leader. He came here to overthrow the Romans. He came here to usher in God's kingdom the way we want that kingdom to be ushered in. So he's not a, we're not thinking about his religious side, although that's important. Mostly he's a political leader, and so kids don't need access to him. He's not here to pray for y'all. That's what, that's what they're saying. He's here, to, he's here to start the revolution. I don't know which it was. Nobody else does either that I know of. Um, the fact is, for whatever reason, the disciples wouldn't let the kids come to him. And most of the theories, all of them that I read, revolve around social constructions. Their society told them kids don't really need to see Jesus right now. For whatever reason, what they thought was right was not God's ideal. Okay? Because I don't think they were being rebellious. I think they were trying to protect Jesus. I think they were doing what they thought was right. Um, Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, a very strong word, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The disciples, can you picture it? It really helps me sometimes to picture things. Picture Jesus walking along the road, huge crowds everywhere, families waiting up ahead, trying to get their kid through the crowd to see Jesus. And the disciples are just trying to get him to where he wants to go. They're like bodyguards. They're like, they're like the, the, the people, right? They're doing their best to accomplish the pur- purpose that they believe Jesus has. And Jesus rebukes them indignantly and says, let them come to me for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Let's do that first. What's he mean by that? What is it about kids that, that makes the kingdom of God belong to them? What is that such? What is that characteristic that, that, that makes it true that the kingdom of God belongs to people with that characteristic? And I used to think it was, you know, kids are sweet and they're innocent, I guess. That's what they tell me. And they're, they're, they're I don't know, they're, they're kids, they're nice right? That's what they, that's that's what I used to believe before I had kids. My kids, they can be nice for sure. They can be nice. They can be, they can be, they can be great kids, but also they can be spiteful and they can be mean and they can be greedy. Sorry, kids. I'm sure y'all aren't like that. My kids can be those ways though, right? Is it their characteristics? 
Is it their personalities that make them ideal citizens for the kingdom? I don't think so. It doesn't make any sense, really. I think it goes back to their social situation here. They're completely dependent. And they're still completely dependent. Kids, kids lean into their dependency. They, they continue to ask their parents if they can do things, even though they know they probably can. Mom, can I do this? Dad, can I, can I get a drink of water? Of course you can get a drink of water. But let me ask dad first to make sure. Make sense? I think it's that dependency. I think it's that, it's that knowing that they can't survive on their own in this world full of grown-ups and rules that they don't understand and, and, and scary things they hear their parents talking about. I think they recognize their inability to survive on their own and they lean on their parents. They embrace that dependency. They embrace their weakness and depend entirely on their parents. I think that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Depend entirely on him. Forget that we know stuff about this world and that it helps us navigate this world in a way that makes us seem successful. Forget all that stuff and depend completely on him. Have your mind changed by him. Have your, have your mind transformed by him. It's so hard. So, 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 so hard. And, and to demonstrate that, I would just like to point out, I'm not giving us a pass. I'm saying it's really hard. <clears throat> This whole thing happened. I don't know what your Bibles look like. On my Bible, it's a page away. At any rate, it's, it's 10 days, 20 days, probably 10 days before would be the, the outside range. Go back to 9, chapter 9, verse 33, where we started. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus says, no, you're not seeing it right. The kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world, you strive to be powerful over people. The kingdom of God, you strive to be the servant of all. And his illustration, in verse 36, he took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever does not welcome me, and whoever does not welcome me does not and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. That's it. Do you see that? He gave them very specific instructions that could have been applied to this situation just a few days later. And they heard that. They were standing with him when he said it. They heard it and it just bounced off their heads because the way they thought about things was the way the world told them to think about things. It's so hard to have our mind transformed. And the beginning of that has to be an understanding of how insufficient we are, how much we have to depend on God uh, through relationship with Jesus to, 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 to allow ourselves to be equipped with that transformed mind that we can serve him better. So I just said more words just like Jesus did. It's gonna bounce off our heads. That's how it works. But let's look at this picture at the end. 16, and he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. Still the huge crowds are there. Still the disciples are nervous about the huge crowd. And Jesus just pushes his way through. Let the little children come to me. And then if he did it in the style that the rabbis did on birthdays, then he would get down on a knee 
at the child's level. And he would bring them in and he would bless them. All the stuff going on beside him, going on around him, all the craziness, all the... He's going to Jerusalem to be killed on a cross. He's going to Jerusalem for all of our sins to be put on his shoulders. And he stops in the middle of that. And he says, I want to see these little children who don't offer anything that could, could save Jesus from those, from those things. And we'd get down on a knee and he would look at him and he would say a prayer over him. And then I can just imagine him hugging that kid. And he says, yeah, go on. And then here's the next one. And he does it again. And he does it again. And he just keeps loving each one of these, these children as individuals. I think if we can get that picture in our head, that can help us transform our minds. It's not words. Jesus really lived he really did these things. And we are really to live after him. We're really to do those things that he did. We're really to do those things, whatever. Think the way he thought. We're really to have our minds transformed. And I think there's so much power in that story to do that. <clears throat> Let's pray. Our Father, I'm thankful, Lord, that... Uh, that your kingdom is, is wide and it's, it's open to any who would put their faith in you. Lord, I'm thankful that you're merciful, that your grace extends to us every day as we, as we continue to fail you and as we continue to fall short of, of, of your standards. And we do it so often that we don't even recognize it. We don't even, we don't even take time to repent. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would... Um, You'd bring conviction to us so that we can, we can recognize our need to repent, recognize the, the need we have to depend on you for every, everything, for everything, Lord. Lord, I pray uh, pray that we'd be open to rethinking the way we understand the world as we, as we encounter life's difficulties and the hectic and the, the, the busyness that comes into our lives, Lord, I just, I pray that you would, you would give us a renewed vision of that, a renewed understanding of what's important and what's not important, Lord. Give us the courage to, to be obedient to that new, new, new understanding to our changed minds, Lord, and, and through that we can change the world. Lord, we thank you for, for trusting us as the ambassadors of your kingdom. And I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, um, continue to help us, uh, help us grow closer to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.